0: Hello, you're listening to a podcast from the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions, where we study the past to understand our feelings in the present. I'm Thomas Dixon, and this is The Sound of Anger. Episode 1. What is it? What makes you angry? For me, it's… well, where do I start? Slow internet connections, failed internet connections, intermittent internet connections that cut out at exactly the crucial moment, wireless speakers that won't play the song that I've selected, cats under my feet, children bickering, children not eating the meals that they said they definitely wanted, me shouting at my children, bad drivers, slow drivers, fast drivers, aggressive drivers swearing at me, fellow commuters eating crisps loudly, Um, fellow commuters listening to music on their headphones so loudly I can hear it for my whole journey. That man who tutted and rolled his eyes at me for taking up more than my share of the table with my laptop when he didn't even need any of the table. I mean, you don't even need that bit of table. Why are you rolling your eyes at me? Hello. My name is Thomas, and I'm a bit angry. I'm also a historian of emotions at Queen Mary University of London, where I'm running a research project about emotional health. I've spent a lot of time thinking about troubling feelings, past and present, and this podcast series on The Sound of Anger is my attempt to figure out what anger is, where it comes from, how it feels, and whether it's healthy. You might have heard political and cultural commentators saying that we live in an age of anger. It's become a commonplace a cliché to say so, and to point to events including the election of President Trump, Brexit, or the Me Too movement as evidence. But before we can get to grips with the question of anger in modern politics, we need to know what anger is. And that's what this episode is about. The first thing I've learned when talking to people for this podcast is that there are many different ideas about what that word anger means.
1: I defy anyone to say they've never been angry
0: Anger is wrong That's what I've been trained to think
1: It is that sense of wanting to let something out It's a bit like vomiting or something
2: Because I don't really know what it is
1: I find it frightening
2: It's it's energy, it is a burst of energy
1: It's like fire, you can cook with it or you can burn your house down
0: The dominant view of anger in the last 50 years has been the one expressed there by Professor Kayindi Andrews and Laurie Lixenberg, both of whom we'll be meeting again later in the series. That anger is a kind of natural human energy, and it's basically good and healthy to channel that energy and to let it out in various ways. Historically, though, the most influential ancient philosophers of rage and ire, the emotional ancestors of our anger, didn't see it in terms of energy. And expression. For them, a desire for revenge was the key thing. In the Iliad, the greatest of all the Greek heroes, Achilles, says that revenge is a bitter gall sweeter than dripping streams of honey that swarms in people's chests and blinds like smoke. And it's this image that the ancient philosopher Aristotle uses when he describes the passion of orge a term most often translated as anger or rage. In a slightly more sober vein, the English philosopher John Locke wrote in the 17th century, Anger is uneasiness or discomposure of the mind upon the receipt of any injury with a present purpose of revenge. Revenge and anger were closely linked in other ways too. Dr Charlotte Rose Miller is a research fellow at the University of Queensland, she has investigated the history of witches and their emotions, including anger.
1: For my people in the 16th and 17th century, anger and revenge, particularly for women, are inseparable. Using anger is To get revenge on something. It doesn't sort of come without revenge. They did feel a sense of anger over a grievance. So often these women are very poor or at the margins of society and they're treated very badly. So some people are slapped, they're spat on, they're ignored, and they're also very impoverished. So for them, they act out on their anger. And the only power they have in society's eyes is using the devil to get revenge. And what's really interesting is as soon as these women give in to anger, the devil appears and says, Ah, you're angry, I can give you the power to act on your anger. So they often have a trigger. So one um, woman is sacked, and that means that she becomes completely angry and she starts cursing and swearing. There's one witch whose child is attacked, and so she takes revenge for the child. She kills all the farmer's pigs and his sows and horses, and they go mad and foam at the mouth and die horribly.
0: So. In the past, to talk about rage and wrath was to talk about revenge, as well as possibly witches and devilry. Our understanding of anger today tends to be shaped by more scientific ideas, and the most influential of those has been the theory of basic emotions. If you've seen the Disney Pixar movie Inside Out, then you'll already be familiar with this idea. In that film, we follow the adventures of the five emotions running 11-year-old Riley's brain. They are fear... Disgust, sadness, joy, and anger. For basic emotion theorists, that small handful of feelings, plus or minus a couple, depending on the version of the theory you subscribe to, is hardwired into all people's brains the same way it is into Riley's brain in Inside Out. So, according to this way of thinking about emotions, which has been popularized by the American psychologist Paul Ekman, all the varieties of rage and fury in different cultures and different periods are essentially the same. They're all expressions of that basic emotion of anger. A hardwired readiness to fight which sends blood pumping to my arms and fists and results in a distinctive facial expression. Arr! That's the theory at least. But not all psychologists are convinced. Jim Russell is professor of psychology at Boston College and a leading international expert on the science of emotions. Does he think that there's a single emotion of anger underlying all the cultural variations?
3: No, I would like to um, distance myself from that view. It seems to me probably part of the problem is we tend to think in terms of nouns and fixed things. And in fact, these are events. And there's just an uncountable number of different events that we label as anger, but they may have nothing in common. There's times when you're angry, but you don't feel all that bad. You're kind of annoyed with something, but you smile and it's okay. Um, or, 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 I
0: mean, h- historically, there's the idea that people really enjoy the thought of revenge. Yes. That there's yes. This kind of rather evil pleasure in right. thinking about, right, now I'm going to get my own bag. Right, yeah, right.
3: You're angry at somebody and then they're, they trip and fall and you're, ah, yes, got that person. But... um definitions of anger, it seems to me, always try and find necessary conditions, and there probably just aren't necessary conditions. So there are cases of anger where you want revenge, but other cases where you don't want revenge at all. There are cases where you're all upset, other cases where you're quite calm and resigned to it. So I don't want to think there's some one thing behind all these cases of anger. It's quite a heterogeneous group of events.
0: In the 19th century, Charles Darwin was one of the first people to investigate whether there were any universal ways of expressing emotions. Expressions that were the same in all people, and also even in animals too. You can find out more about that by listening to one of the other podcasts in this series, an original drama by Craig Baxter called Darwin Vexed, in which the famous man of science enlists the help of a pioneering photographer to try to capture those moments of emotional expression. Even Charles Darwin, though, didn't think there was one single emotion of anger, but rather a family of related feelings, including hatred, rage, and indignation. Jim Russell has done extensive research into whether there are such things as universal facial expressions for particular emotions. So, is there a single anger face, for example?
3: Paul Ekman has been studying this for many years, and there is one stereotype version, which is, a frown, wrinkled brow, eyes wide open, teeth bared as if you're going to bite something. But Paul Ekman has also found in his research that there's maybe, I forget, dozens and dozens of variations on this. And so there is no really one facial expression that even the most adamant basic emotion theorist has come up with.
0: I'm trying to do it. Can you?
3: If I, I can't really frown and keep my eyes wide open at the same time. It's raising the upper lids... Okay. And then frowning and baring your teeth. <laughs> I
0: wish people could see the faces Jim and I are making at each other. <laughs> uh, but as you say, even basic emotion theorists admit that there's not just one face. So it right. starts to unravel right at the beginning. Because I've also seen a version of the anger face with the mouth closed and pursed right. lips. pursed lips, yes, um,
3: that's one of them. So there's or there's a-, there's a Clint Eastwood effect, the actor, and you, it's the lower eyelids go up. Okay. It's kind of a...
0: Kind of nasty
3: stare of smouldering st- like. <laughs> kind, of, kind of anger, yes.
0: yeah okay, so even at the beginning we've actually got more than one face, but let, right. let, let's suppose go along with the idea there's this one dominant anger face. Right. Now you've looked at work which kind of uh, suggests that it's not so widely recognized or easily produced as, as the theory would suppose:
3: Well, ironically, the production of this face has been rarely studied. It's simply assumed that angry people must be making those faces. But there have recently been an analysis looking at those few studies that have looked at the production. So you can bring people into the laboratory and insult them or ask them to remember times when they were angry or they see some obnoxious film or something like that. And in those studies very few, if any, ever produce the full-blown stereotype facial expression that you and I were trying to make earlier. In maybe a third of the cases, 25% to 30%, you see a part of it, maybe the lips pursed or the brows furrowed, and that's about it. So in the large majority of cases, you find nothing on the face.
0: And I think that chimes with my experience of real life, which is most of the time that I or other people experiencing strong emotions, you don't really show it. Right. It's not normal to go around doing, as you say, these kind of overacted facial expressions. I think you'd be locked up if you did did such a thing. (laughs) But if the idea that everyone who is angry makes an angry face seems unlikely, is there nonetheless a shared understanding of what a stereotypical angry face might look like? I mean, if people are shown a picture of the classic frowning anger face do they recognise it as anger? According to Jim Russell, yes, people generally do what the basic emotions theory says they should. They look at a big smile and they say, aha, happiness. They see a frowning face and they say, yes, anger. But only so long as they are university-educated adults from Europe
3: or North America. But the question is, do children do the same sort of thing? Do people in societies less influenced by Western thinking And at first, there's a famous study Paul Ekman trekked through Papua New Guinea, had little cards with these photographs of Americans posing these facial expressions, showed them, and supposedly got them to recognize the emotions from the facial expressions. And then for many years, 50 years, no one did that kind of research because it's very difficult to go to Papua New Guinea. Uh, It's tough, tough going. But recently, a team from Spain that I had something to do with went to Papua New Guinea and they also went to some islands off the coast of Mozambique and tried to do these kinds of studies again. And surprisingly weak results. For the most part, you have to find a technique that really almost forces them to make choices. They don't spontaneously want to say, oh, this person's angry, that person's afraid. Uh, when you kind of force them to, you show just a few facial expressions and say, show me the angry person, they will point to, to somebody. But they don't always point to the Ekman anger face. In fact, much more likely they'll point to the Ekman fear face of somebody who's angry. And it turns out that in the culture of the Trobrian Islanders, They have statues of threatening witches, and it looks very much like a fear face. Wide open eyes, open mouth. A gaping
0: or gasping face. Yeah, a
3: gasping kind of face. What it seems to me is going on is that each culture will have an interpretation of these faces. I think in the West we do pay attention to faces. Little children are trained. There's books and pamphlets on how to understand facial expressions. Maybe some cultures don't pay all that much attention to it, but they have their own way of interpreting faces.
0: I was pretty convinced by what Jim Russell had to tell me about why he doesn't believe there is a basic emotion of anger and why culture and context are all important in creating and expressing our feelings. And I really enjoyed talking to him. You can hear the whole conversation between Jim and me in a separate standalone episode of this podcast series. But I'm aware that many... Perhaps most emotion scientists still tend to endorse some version of the theory of basic emotions. Sarah Garfinkel is Professor of Clinical and Effective Neuroscience at the University of Sussex, and she studies the way that changes in the brain and body, and our awareness of those changes, shape our emotional lives.
2: What is emotion if you strip away all bodily sensations? The role of the body has been known for some time, like William James would argue, that Feelings are very derived from detecting the heart pounding.
0: The 19th century philosopher and psychologist William James, who Sarah mentions, wrote a hugely influential article simply titled What Is an Emotion? in 1884. He says we might normally think an emotion in the mind gives rise to subsequent changes in the body, Our teeth chatter and our bodies tremble like Scooby-Doo and his friends in a haunted fairground because we've got afraid. But in fact, William James says, it's the other way round. The changes in our body and our awareness of those changes give rise to the emotions in our mind. It's only because they are quaking and shaking that Scooby and Shaggy start to feel afraid. So, I wonder if Sarah Garfinkel, as a modern inheritor of the William James embodied view of feelings, might have some thoughts about the controversy over basic emotions.
2: Oh, I've got so many thoughts. It's like science wars.
0: (laughs) Does she still believe in basic emotions?
2: I'm definitely a subscriber of basic emotions still.
0: Sarah explains that scientists like to study emotions that seem to correlate with a nice, clear pattern of activity in the brain and the body.
2: As scientists, we like to put things in boxes. We like to know what we're getting. There's loads on fear. There's beautiful, predictable things that happen with sadness and disgust is also pretty reliable. Happiness is a joy to study because <laughs> it's, you know, you show someone a happy face and you get a happy reaction. In terms of fear, you have a classic effect in the brain. The best signature of fear is amygdala activation. And amygdala is an area that's classically involved in fear. You get amygdala activation to other emotions as well. So it's not enough just to say amygdala. But let's say I had someone with post-traumatic stress disorder or a generalized anxiety disorder who had heightened fear fear memories or on heightened fear state, they would have more amygdala activation and more of a fear response to these fear stimuli. So you get a predictable increase in this fear signature in the brain in these highly fearful people.
0: But even for a believer in basic emotions, like Sarah Garfinkel, who tries to measure the physical signs of emotions in her lab, anger poses a real problem.
2: From a research perspective, anger is just a nightmare (laughs) because if I present a sad face I'm pretty sure I can elicit a sad response if I present a happy face I can elicit a happy response and these may vary depending on individual differences but you still get a mirroring of the emotion whereas with anger faces you don't necessarily get a mirror I can't count on an angry reaction happening to an anger face it could also be a fear response that happens to an angry face so you don't get this mirroring that you do get with other emotions. And so anger is a complete challenge because you can't count on it the way that you can do with other ones which have more predictable directions.
0: So what can you do about that? How can a scientist like Sarah try to get to grips with anger in the lab?
2: You need to measure a number of other things. You need to measure what emotion people have had in response. You need to measure their personality. So are they someone who tends to be angry? You need to measure their physiology to see what sort of effect is it. Is there a blood pressure effect? Um, is it potentially not having a bodily effect? So you get these all these individual difference measures really making a complex interaction between personality, anger, reaction or behavioural response in brain.
0: So, anger is a badly behaved emotion in the lab. It throws up loads of individual difference and diversity of responses. Which makes me think, if the attempt to study anger results in such messy results and so much individual difference, then, well, maybe anger's not a real thing at all. Of course, there is an alternative way to explain why it's so difficult to study anger at the neurological and physiological level. And this is where I tentatively disagree with Professor Garfinkel and some other emotion scientists. And that would be that anger doesn't exist as a coherent thing at that level. The reason why it is so hard to pin down in the lab is there is no single it to look for. And yet, there's no doubt that my raging at the internet, or shouting at my cats, or at my children, is well. It must be something. Jerry Parrott is professor of psychology at Georgetown University and is a former president of the International Society for Research on Emotion. So I thought that Jerry, if anyone, should know what anger is. So I asked him,
4: "What is anger?" Well, I would say anger is an emotion that is following certain rules that are restricted to a a western or anglo-european culture but it has commonalities with many similar emotions in other cultures and other historical settings I sometimes speak of something that I call ur-emotions, an expression that hasn't caught on. Uh, Maybe the lesson here is don't use obscure German prefixes when inventing (laughs) terminology. But what I'm trying to communicate is that there's something to the idea of basic emotions. One can't fail but notice there are anger-like emotions all over the world and throughout history, Yet at the same time, the emotion is significantly shaped by the particular social rules and cultural conventions in which it's situated.
0: I like that idea of an er er-emotion, even though it hasn't caught on, Um, (laughs) because I think that's what I feel like, that there's something underlying all this plurality that I'm looking at, all these different anger-like emotions, these passions and feelings and hostilities. But exactly as you've just said, that we'll never get to it, whatever that... It is, that ur-emotion. It's not something that psychology or history or anything can get at, but we believe it's there somehow holding this stuff together. Is that what you think?
4: I I do. I think, uh, as I sometimes say, the only problem with the idea of basic emotions is that they don't exist. (laughs) Uh, That is, not by themselves. They can be seen underlying an actual occurring emotion. They're not the same thing.
0: In other words, the idea of a basic emotion is a useful fiction. It might help us group emotional events with certain similarities together, but it doesn't name something we will ever encounter in real life. Particular, culturally specific emotional experiences are the real things. Different cultures and languages have very different ways of describing and categorising angry emotions. And, as Jerry Parrott explains, they are not superficial variations on something more basic. They are fundamental
4: These are not trivial variations on some deep, unchanging universal emotion, but rather the channeling and filling out of an underlying impulse to be assertive or hostile or to block or thwart something that one finds offensive. And so there's an an abstraction there that's underlying it, but you never see the abstraction all by itself. It's always embodied in a particular context.
0: So if there are reasons to doubt that anger is the name of a single thing, then perhaps we should modify our language accordingly.
4: Yes, so I think using a word that is upfront about the vagueness of the family resemblance, such as hostility related, is preferable to saying these are all anger because that confuses a particular idea of anger with the general family, which is bound together by something uh, much more uh, uh, vague and uh, not really an emotion on its own standing.
0: Maybe anger isn't a single emotion, and maybe it isn't universal. And there's one more fascinating and quite extraordinary thing that came out at the end of our interview with Sarah Garfinkel, when we asked her if she is an angry person herself?
2: No, I'm not at all. I really don't understand anger. And there's something called alexithymia, where you have difficulty in identifying and recognising feelings. And I... I didn't really understand what alexithymia was. It didn't make sense to me. I'm, I'm emotional, I'm happy, I'm sad. And I suddenly realized I don't have anger and I have very selective alexithymia to anger states. And things have happened recently, like someone made a mistake in the lab and all the data is wrong. And I felt this weird sensation and I'm like, this is anger <laughs> and I didn't know how to deal with it and I grew up in a household where my parents didn't argue and I didn't have anger around me and I have other emotions very intensely I have sadness very intensely I have fear I have joy And anger was one I grew up with, and it's not one I understand in others. I feel like we can solve things in other ways. Let's just talk it through. (laughs) So I don't understand it as an emotion in others, and I don't understand it as an emotion in myself, if maybe it has been elicited.
0: I have to say, that really took me by surprise. Professor Garfinkel is a scientist of emotions who believes that anger is one of a handful of universal basic emotions, yet she has never experienced anger herself. It's striking to me that her belief in anger as a universal emotion is so strong that she's still convinced of it despite her own personal experience, or rather lack of it, of what most people consider anger. In a later episode, we'll be thinking about whether such an absence of anger might be understood in political moral or philosophical terms as a state to be aimed at rather than a psychological abnormality. So what is anger? Who's right? Paul Ekman, Sarah Garfinkel and the basic emotions people? Or Jim Russell, Jerry Parrott and others who take a more culturally constructed approach to emotion? As a historian, I tend towards the Jim and Jerry view. that particular emotions are constructions. They are made by particular brains and bodies in particular cultures, using the ideas, words and beliefs available. And it's encouraging for me, as a mere historian, to find that there are scientific emotion researchers out there who agree about that. But there's still that nagging and difficult question to answer about anger. If it's not a universal human emotion, then what is it? Well, to start with uncontroversial facts, anger is an English word. It's a word that, as we've heard, means different things to different people. And in my view, there isn't a single coherent physical or emotional state that corresponds to that word. An ancient warrior seeking revenge. An early modern witch killing a farmer's livestock. Me in my kitchen shouting at the Wi-Fi connection. A scientist unhappy about losing some of her data and feeling a strange stirring. These are not all the same thing. And there's not a physiology or a set of expressions that they all share. But does something, anything, link together those many events and feelings that we label with our poor, overworked term, anger? For me, it all comes back to a sort of physical feeling of frustration, with a bit of outrage, a dollop of aggression, and quite a lot of shouting. But how does anger feel for other people? Do they experience it like that, or in quite a different way? Well, that's what we're going to find out in the next episode of The Sound of Anger. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions. It was presented by me, Thomas Dixon, as part of the Living with Feeling project, generously supported by the Wellcome Trust. It was produced by Natalie Steed. To hear the rest of The Sound of Anger series, and to listen to our other podcasts, Search for Queen Mary History of Emotions on SoundCloud or iTunes and discover more about our work at emotionslab.org.